If you would, grab your Bible, turn to Revelation 1. We're going to read 9 through 11. So I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, and to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. After the service today, when you go out into the foyer, there's going to be a, um, just a wooden stand there, and there'll be some pages that are there. There are, uh, I, I spent about two and a half days uh, this week writing of the four predominant views in which people interpret Revelation. If you want to know why people see the book of Revelation in many different ways, um, if you will read this, there's one page, there's four main ones, and so there's four of those that are here and uh, you can get that and you can, uh, you know, kind of take a look at that. Um, it's the preterist perspective, the historicist. Uh, one's called idealist and the last one is called the futurist. But you can get that and take that home uh, during the week and read that. And, and if you've got questions, uh, feel free um, to let me know about that. So we are walking through Revelation 1 for the purpose of getting to Revelation 2 and 3 where we are going to look at the seven churches that Jesus just mentioned in verse 11 a while ago. So these were real churches that existed at the time. They were kind of on a postal route, and we'll see that at the end. Um, And so when John, who's on the Isle of Patmos, writes this and gets it out, it's to go to these seven churches. And so whoever had that would have taken the copies and would have gone up the postal route, kind of, from starting at Ephesus and going up this way and ending up at Laodicea and taking these letters to these seven specific churches. And so as I have restudied um, chapter 1 again of Revelation, I have been challenged, I have been encouraged, um, my confidence in God has increased again, and so it is my hope that that will continue to be the case um, for all of us. And so I want to start today of just reminding us how Revelation has been put together. If you would, look at verse 19 of chapter 1. So John sees Jesus, and we'll talk about that next week. But Jesus tells him in verse 19 of chapter 1, Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, the things that are, and those that are to take place after this. So the things that are seen is what, G, what John sees in Revelation 1. The things that are are what we're going to study in Revelation 2 and 3 with the seven churches. And then from chapter 4 all the way to chapter uh, 22 are the things that are going to come, things in regard to the future. And so Revelation has been structured this way by Jesus' counsel to John in verse 19 to write the book in, um, in this order. And so the first thing I want us to see today, we're going to spend quite a bit of time looking at John. John plays a tremendous role through this book. Um, He will refer to himself a couple more times and there's a, he will say, I saw this and he's been, he will be told to write this. And so because John is a key player in the unveiling of this revelation that has come about Jesus in these letters to the seven churches originally, and now these 
this book to us in the ongoing church following Jesus, it's important for us to know who he is and what was going on with his life. And so if you'll see with me there in the first part of verse 9, he says, I, John, your brother. And this is the first thing I want to stress this morning. John had a lot of credentials. Just think about it. He was chosen specifically by Jesus. One day he's with his brother. They are working on their nets after a night of fishing. Jesus has called James and John to follow. They go a little, he, Jesus goes a little bit further and he, he finds John and says, John, I want you and your brother to follow me. They're with their father in the boat and, and they leave their nets. They leave their father and John begins to walk and follow with Jesus. In Matthew 17, John is up on the mountain when the glory of Jesus is transfigured. So he's been called. He has seen the glory of Jesus. He would have been with Jesus when they went across the boat to the other side of a lake and a man who was demon-possessed met them and cried out to Jesus, what have you, the demons did, what have you to do with us, Son of God? And Jesus cast out the demons and he would have witnessed this and he would have seen this man who was crazed and ran around and yelled and cut himself with rocks, now freed, sitting in his right mind. John knew Jesus well enough that at the Last Supper, he leans back on Jesus's chest. That's the way they kind of did things back then. You would get close to a close friend and John was the one who was seated next to Jesus in the upper room. He was present when Jesus was arrested in John 18. He was present as well because he had had a relationship with somebody in the high priest's house. He got to go inside and he got to hear what was said about Jesus and what was happening and taking place. On the day that Jesus was crucified, he's the only apostle who was standing there and listening and seeing what is happening on that day. He is the one who gets the last words of Jesus uh, directed to someone on the cross where Jesus says, I want you to take care of my mother. John was... John 20 verse 8 says that when he went into the tomb on the day of the resurrection, it says that he was the first one to believe. Now, I want, to, I want you to note this. And so now he's, he's been exiled. He gets this revelation of the glory of Jesus and the unfolding of the church age and the things that are going to come. And he's, he is exiled on the island of Patmos. And he identifies himself with the churches, not with all of his credentials. And he had credentials. He had been walking with the Lord, starting churches, influencing churches for over six decades. And he just identifies with the churches and says, I, John, your brother, I am your brother. And I want to emphasize this, that one of the things that we as God's people must never lose sight of is that church is not just an organization. It is far more than that. Church is the redeemed people of God who are a part of an eternal family. And each of us needs to see ourselves in relationship to one another. Yes, into relationship with Christ, but also into in relationship with one another. And so here's John exiled, gets this vision. He's told to write it down and send it to the seven churches. And he identifies himself as saying this, I am John, your brother. And then he's going to say another word in just a moment. And so, so I remind us for about 65 years or so, John has been faithfully walking with Jesus. 
His writings will, would and they will influence the church um, until the church is no more. And so John is a significant player in church history. He's a significant player today in the impact that he has upon our life from the gospel of John, the epistles, and now the book of Revelation. So John is the vessel in whom God chose and whom he would send this revelation of Jesus in this fresh way. And so he just saw himself not as over anybody, not as better than anybody, not as more credentialed as anybody. He recognized that I am a brother connected to sisters and other brothers in the faith. And we are connected as the people of God. I love this reality and this truth that all over the world yesterday, because many churches um, in some parts of the world meet on Saturday, and then many in, or majority probably have met already today in other parts of the world, and then now all over America today, people are gathered in buildings. Every one of us who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus are a part of a family. And one day we will be before the throne. Revelation 5 gives us this glorious picture, and 7 does as well where all of God's people, brothers and sisters, are standing before the throne of Jesus, worshiping together. So I ask you this morning, how do you see your life? Do you see your life connected to the brothers and sisters in the room? Do you, do you, do you and I see our lives connected to the church worldwide? And so John says, I'm a person in God's family. I'm a brother to all of the believers worldwide. Here's the second thing John says. He says, not only am I your brother, but I am a partner, specifically speaking to the seven churches, in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. So he now shares three things that as the family of God, that they are partnering in together. These seven churches, really just six of them, Laodicea has lost its way. It's the only church of the seven that's not experiencing any kind of persecution. They have lost their heart for God. And and so Jesus deals with some other things. But six of the churches have much in common with John. John is under persecution. Six of the churches are under persecution as well. So he tells them, not only are we brothers, we're part of the family of God. But we are partnering together in three unique ways. This word partner means to have something in common with others. And so our relationship with Jesus puts us in fellowship with others who have a common hope, a common blessing, common responsibilities. But in this case, three common themes connected to persecution as the people of God. And so the first one is this. John says, we have this in common seven churches, we, have, we are going through a time of tribulation. We're going through a time of persecution. The root word of this, this word here in tribulation means literally, there's a number of things it could be, but to get a good idea, it means to crush something. We all know it, to crush something. I love walking in the fall in McKinney with my wife on the sidewalks or the top parts of the acorns They don't have acorns anymore, and I love stepping on them and crunching them and crushing them. Um, And so I do that all through the walk. It's kind of a weird thing that I do, but I do that. This is what this word means. It means to crush something. So note what John says here. Brothers and sisters, 
We have this in common, partnering in the gospel. We are all being crushed by the heavy hand of Rome because of our love of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So John is a partner with them in the same kinds of things, the tribulation of the persecution that is going on because of Rome. Paul would write about 30 years before John gets this revelation, these words, 2 Timothy 3.12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, will be crushed, will be, have pressure put upon them because of their faith. As a matter of fact, John and all of the apostles never knew a time in their life when there wasn't persecution about their faith. We in the West, here in America, we have literally, absolutely no clue what it was like in the first century where every believer for the first 60 to 70 years did not know anything but persecution. As a matter of fact, for the first several hundred years of the church, that's what Christians in the West knew is that the Roman government sought to crush you and silence you. This, is, this was the norm. And so that's why Paul would write, everybody... Paul didn't know about America. The Spirit did. But if he'd have known about America, he, said, he probably would have put a little parentheses there. Except for you in America, you're going to have your nice buildings and your air conditioning. And nobody's going to threaten you. Um, although we are seeing more verbal things that are being said about our faith. But for John and the churches that John is writing to, they never knew anything other than persecution toward them. So Rome tried to crush their faith So one, he says, we're partners in the tribulation. Secondly, he says, we are partners in the kingdom. So kingdoms have a king. Are we in agreement about that? Yes. So kings have a kingdom and they have subjects in the kingdom. And so John's writing, we all are a part of the kingdom of God. He said it last week, I believe in verse 2, where he says, we have been made a kingdom of priests Loving our God, walking with God, being faithful with our God. And so John says we're partnering together in the tribulation and the persecution that is coming to believers from Rome. Secondly, we are partners together as citizens and subjects in the kingdom of God where Jesus is the king. So in a spiritual sense, we're part of the kingdom of God. Eventually in the future, we'll be a part of a physical future kingdom called the millennial kingdom. Or we'll be citizens of that, and that eventually we will be in God's presence, living forever and ever, a part of the eternal kingdom that God will also be in charge of. And so John says, I want to remind you, I'm your brother. I'm not better than you. I'm partnering with you in the persecution and the tribulation that has come. We are part of the kingdom of God, subjects who have a king, and so we live to please him. The third thing he reminds them is that we are partnering in patient endurance. This word patient endurance is a phrase that literally just means this, able to abide and remain, to stay committed when great pressure comes upon a faith. So throughout history, you can read about this and you can see it in the pages of scripture. There is a power that comes to those who love Jesus, who are under persecution that in many ways defies logic. There's a faithfulness that is connected to that And so John is in his 90s now. We believe that as a teenager, he began to follow the Lord now. It's about 80, 95, and 96. He's on Patmos. 
He gets this revelation. He is still walking with the Lord. He has never stopped serving. He has never stopped working, looking for, seeking, being purpose after, waiting on the Lord. And he's not lost his faith. Note this. Why? His home was not where he lived. His home was who he was in. He understood that I am in Jesus. Jesus holds me. So though he's, whether he's in Ephesus or whether he's in the prison called Patmos, it doesn't matter. He knows this, that Jesus is my home. And so if I get left here, then I get to faithfully walk with Jesus and experience him. If I am taken from here, then I get to be with Jesus and to be in his presence. And so John found his home not grounded in circumstances. And so he was able to keep his faith for almost seven decades. Not wavering, not turning away, but maintaining his faith. And so John continuing to trust in Jesus in every way. And so as he writes these words about himself here, they are very personal. And it's a unique description of a unique Christ follower who said, no stopping, no quitting, no time to sit down and do nothing for the gospel. We are to continue on. There was never a moment where John took the time off. He continued. And so this week I've been challenged by these thoughts about him. Here's the third thing that I want us to see this morning. At the end of verse 9 there, I believe it's the end of verse 9, well, about the third part of verse 9, he says, that are in Jesus. And I want to talk about what this phrase means, in Jesus. So as I said a while ago, Laodicea had lost its way. It's the seventh of the churches, and when we get there, Jesus has the strongest words of any of the seven churches are said to them. But for six of the churches in John, their circumstances and what he referred to as being in Jesus were very unique circumstances. It's what we see in believers all over the world today. There is an experience that we are having today and that persecuted believers are having that is unique that those who do not know Christ have no idea about. People who don't know Jesus don't know what it's like to be in a room where we celebrate people who are part of our life and, and are encouraged that they've reached this new milestone of their life. People who aren't believers don't know what it's like to gather in a room like this to worship Jesus together. People who, who don't know what it's like to find Jesus as the treasure of treasures don't know what it's like where there are in places where there are deep, deep persecution where people right now as we are gathered in the room are fearful of their lives because they are followers of Jesus and yet they are maintaining their faith. There is something unique to those who are in Jesus that everybody else has no idea about except for those in Jesus. Now I want you to look at the verse 9 again. I, John, get back to it here. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus. I want you to note that. Did you notice that? What three things are in Jesus? The same three things that John says that they are partnering in. What does that mean? Well, we know this about Jesus, 
that when Jesus was here on the earth, he was persecuted. I want to remind you of these words. I want you to hear these words. If you're taking notes, write down Hebrews 5, 7, and 8. Listen to what the writer of Hebrews says about Jesus. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. That's not physical death. That is a spiritual death. That was the thing that Jesus came to live a perfect life, to conquer the grave. And so he, he cried out to his father, Father, keep me in you. So he cries out loud to the one who can save him from death. And then the scripture says, and Jesus was heard because of his reverence. And then verse 8 says, and although he was a son, hear these words about Jesus, the eternal son of God here in the flesh, he learned obedience from what he suffered. So Jesus himself, while he was here, experienced persecution experienced rejection, experienced the crushing that can come from sin and Satan and governments that that hate followers of Jesus. And so when John writes this, he says, listen, there are three things that are in Jesus. They were part of his life. They are now a part of our lives. And we are partnering in these things. We're partnering in the persecution together. We are a part of the kingdom with a king, and we are the subjects following him. And we have patient endurance, just as Jesus did, who waited 30 years before he even began to reveal who he was to people. And when he began to reveal it, what an incredible work that he did. And so this phrase, in Jesus, is where we are. It's where we live. And we are the kind of people as well who experience these same things With him. Here's the fourth thing, and it's the last part of verse 9. He says, It was on the island of Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Here was the thing if you lived 2,000 years ago, every citizen of the Roman kingdom had to go at least once a year and go to a public place and say, Caesar is Lord. Well, in the first century, Christians couldn't do that. There was one Lord, and so they only confessed Christ as Lord. And so in many places, that cost them. Some were put in prison because they wouldn't do it. Some were beaten. Some were persecuted for that. But all over the kingdom, every citizen was obligated to make that statement that Caesar is Lord and God. As a matter of fact, look in chapter 2 for a moment in verse 13. This is the church in Pergamum. And this is Jesus speaking here. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So the church of Pergamum, we'll talk about that in, in the weeks to come had a a believer there who wouldn't compromise. We don't know exactly what it was. And they put him to death in Pergamum. He was a member of the church here. So this was going on on a consistent basis. And so here's John. He's going to continue to proclaim the love of Jesus, the worth of Jesus, 
And, and he is put in prison on account of his love of the Word of God, his proclamation of the Word of God, and the testimony about Jesus. So let me go over just some things here so you can kind of get an idea of what is happening here. Patmos was a part of 50 smaller islands in the Mediterranean Sea. It was a volcanic, rocky, barren place. There were copper mines that were on there. And so the Roman prisoners would be put on there and they would work the copper mines. About 40 miles from the city of Miletus is Patmos. If you remember, Miletus is Acts chapter 20 when Paul met with the Ephesian elders for the very last time as he's on a ship going back to Jerusalem. Um, He stopped there. It's near that. And again, it's about, it's about 40 miles west of that. And in John's day, it was used for some of the putting the most hated and, and heinous and violent criminals of the Roman Empire were put there. Rome loved banishing their prisoners in exile. They operated basically two kind of island prisons. One was for political prisoners. They had a little bit more freedom on the islands where they were banished, but those who were put on a place like Patmos, they were forced to be kind of on a chain gang, chained with other people to go down into the mines and to mine the copper and to bring it out. At nighttime, they would sleep in caves. Um, They didn't have to always be chained, but they were constantly being watched. It was a brutal place. It was too far away. There was no escape from Alcatraz, no escape from Patmos. That wasn't going to happen. When you got to Patmos, you're there. You're not swimming to anywhere for freedom. And so so Domitian is the emperor, and he thinks this. I'm going to shut up this guy who's the last remaining apostle of Jesus. And we're tired of him. We're done with him. And I'm going to banish him, and I'm going to put him on Patmos. He's an old man to live out the remainder of his days, work the mines, and we will not have to deal with him anymore. Now I want you to think about this for a moment. Here's John in his 90s, chained together with others, experiencing the punishment. It was said about Patmos that the Roman soldiers loved to crack the whip. They loved to whip the prisoners as they were working to continue to keep them in line, but also just to exert more pain upon them. If you were a criminal in Rome, You lost all of your property, everything that you owned, and any civil rights, they were gone. You never were to get any of those back again. So here's the one that the Bible says that Jesus loved, working in the mines in his 90s on account of his deep love for the Word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Now I want to speak into our current church culture today something important. Every aspect of John's life at the end of his life makes mockery of what's taught in many churches called the prosperity gospel. Here's the last remaining apostle who has walked with Jesus for six and a half decades. And it looks like he's going to end his days on Patmos, die working in the mines. There's no writing from John in any of the things that he writes that he's complaining about this, that he thinks this is unfair, that God has dealt him a wrong hand. Hey, come on, God. 
I've been faithful all of these years. Shouldn't you kind of open up the door and let my remaining days be days of great comfort? But that's not the case. Here's John in his 90s, chained to others, working the mines. He didn't get a break. Sir William Ramsey, the great historian, said that this would have happened to John before he got to Patmos. He would have been preceded when he got there on the island to be scourged like Jesus was when he was whipped. He would have been marked by perpetual fetters. So at times he's chained with others. And then when he's not chained with others at nighttime, he would have chains still on him when he slept. He would have to sleep on a bare ground. He would have to stay in places that are dark cave and work under the lash and the whip of a military overseer. By the way, if you want to, you can travel to the country of Turkey today and you can take a boat ride out to Patmos and a tour guide will take you up the hill where John was in a cave and got this revelation and was worshiping Jesus on this day and you can see where Jesus met him there. See, what's interesting about the world and its persecution of believers, God always gets the last laugh. God's always in control. So Domitian thought, I'm going to send this guy out here, and I'm going to shut him up. He's been a problem for all of the emperors for six and a half decades. But God was not done with John. I want to remind all of the old people in the room this morning, hi, old people. If you're an old person... Do not ever think that God is done using you. For you to pour your life into others, to live faithfully in whatever it is that you do, God has a plan and purpose. Here's John exiled away and God is not done with him. We are not, if we retire, we are not to retire from the faith. We are now should have more time to engage in reading and living and sharing the gospel and praying and seeking and walking God. And so John's crime is he's been banished by Domitian on the count of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. John refused to give in to the demands of the culture around him. He just held firm and held tightly onto Jesus. He knew he had something that Rome couldn't touch, that a whip could not take. There was no question where John's loyalty rested. So if his last days were on Patmos, his faith would still matter. He would worship and love God. He would write this earlier in his longer epistle, 1 John 5, 4. For everyone who has been born of God, he knew this. So yes, I'm on Patmos. I don't have a church out here. I don't have another believer out here. I am old. It's been a hard, persecuted life, but Jesus still is worth it. He would have remembered these words that he had written. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world. He writes these words, our faith, his faith in Jesus. And then he writes, and who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus 
is the Son of God. And so John, under persecution, because of the proclamation of the gospel, would not allow his faith to be crushed. He would live out the remainder of his days if it was on Patmos, if it was not on Patmos, of being a worshiper and a seeker and a follower of Jesus. Here's the next thing. The practice of John's faith. Look at verse 10 and just the first seven or eight words there. So I want you to picture him in a cave where they believe that the cave that he was in um, was up over the Aegean Sea. And he would have stayed there at night. He would have slept there and he could see out over the Aegean Sea um, that's there. And so on a particular Sunday, we believe, because of the Greek word that's used here, he's worshiping by himself. Everybody look up here. Are you listening to me? Are you listening? He has no church. He has no keyboards. He has no guitar. He has nobody else with him. He has no nice blue padded chairs. He has no ceiling fans above him. And on a Sunday, he makes a decision. I'm going to do what everybody else in the world today that knows Jesus is doing. I'm going to worship Jesus. So on a Sunday, at some point in time, if it's morning or if it's afternoon or if it's night, he's in his cave and he begins to worship. He sets aside time, even though it's difficult. Watch this. He's there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And just like Daniel did when they made the law and said, you can't pray anymore to anybody else. And what did Daniel do? He prayed. Here's John continuing to be a seeker of Jesus. Let me give you three thoughts on John here. And we're about done. First one is this. We are to never stop being a worshiper of Jesus. Did you hear that? We are to never stop being a worshiper of Jesus. Here's John still being faithful as a follower of Jesus, a servant of Jesus. You know he's talking to people on Patmos about Jesus. This would have been who he was, and he doesn't stop. Somebody could have said, or John could have said, I've paid so much cost with my life in following. Can somebody else carry the load for a while? Can I have a break and get some time off? Look what has come to me and look what has resulted to me after all of these six and a half decades of faithfully following Jesus. It seems as if I'm not going to live the remainder of my days in peace and enjoy them. This slavery that I now have and working in the copper mines on Patmos are just going to do me in. He could have said that. He didn't. So there is never to be, I just want to say it clearly, there is never to be a day in our life where we are to stop being a worshiper of Jesus. No matter what. John's not focused on his problems. He's not focused on his location. He just fixes his eyes and his heart on Jesus. So one thought on John here, as we see him on the Lord's Day worshiping, 
is that we are to never stop being a worshiper. Secondly, we are to never let circumstances guide our worship. There was nothing comfortable there. When you got to Patmos, listen to this, you got one set of clothing and they better last because if they didn't last, you weren't getting any other new clothing. So the prisoners weren't given blankets at night. They weren't giving fresh clothing. So John's clothing is probably tattered. It's thinner. And he's continuing to have to work. And, and now in the setting here, he doesn't let his circumstances keep him from worshiping. John doesn't have one word of complaint. Nor is he angry about being forced to depart from his friends. We believe at one point in time, John also was the pastor of the church in Ephesus, where Timothy would have later taken over. And so Ephesus had unbelievable leadership. We'll see Ephesus in a few weeks. Apollos had influence there. Paul had influence there. Timothy had influence there. John had influence there. I mean, Ephesus had great spiritual leadership in their history. And we will find about Three decades into the church, four decades into the church, they had lost their alive love for Jesus. They had lost it. So John is continuing to worship. And he says, I was on the island of Patmos and in the Spirit on the Lord's day. There were no soft sheets. You ever been somewhere where they put a peppermint on your pillow? The toilet paper is turned right. I don't know why they do that, but they just do all these nice, fancy things. John didn't have any of that. He's suffering. He's cold. He's hungry. He's not well-dressed. And someone would say, boy, serving the Lord doesn't turn out very well. John, you've been faithful your whole life, and look where it has brought you. And though everything is rough for John in this moment, despite all of these conditions, he is doing on that Sunday what he has done for his whole life. Gather with God's people and worship Jesus. And though he doesn't have anybody else with him, I have no doubt that he's probably thinking about Ephesus and some of the other churches that he started He had preached in and he's thinking about them and probably being encouraged. They are gathering right now as I'm by myself worshiping Jesus by myself on the Lord's day. He probably prayed, Lord, encourage those believers as they are gathered together, suffering under persecution, that they would remain strong in their faith. You see, John knew that obedience to the word is critical And the gathering for worship was to be uncompromising. His fire for Jesus had not diminished after six and a half decades when all he knew was persecution. And I tell you, one of the things that I love about our church is we have some older generation people who have been faithfully walking with the Lord for decade after decade after decade. And it would be a bit foolish for us to look at them and think that they don't have anything to offer when actually they've got unbelievable stories that they could tell about how God had worked 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago and the things that God 
does. And so here's John not allowing his circumstances to dictate his worship. John would have been probably part of the first AAA club. Some of y'all are part, you older people are part of AAA. I qualify now for some other special benefits now. I get discounts at restaurants. It's pretty awesome. The original AAA is this. It's Age, Arthritis, and Advil. And some of you know about that. Um, You live in that reality. And I'll just say this before we look at the third thing. For many of us, hear this. We could use a dose of the kind of faith that John had grown to have. That nothing was going to stop him from being a worshiper. Here's the third thing that John does. He makes the Lord's Day a priority. He doesn't have a pastor texting him during the week saying, missed you last Sunday, hope you'll be there this Sunday. He do- well, Notice this, he has nobody on Patmos holding him accountable and yet he's mature enough now that his faith is strong enough to be maintained, that God's people gather to worship. And though I can't be with anybody else to worship today, I'm going to worship at least at the same time that other believers are worshiping right now. So he gathers for corporate worship of one, two, or four. I guess we could say four. The Spirit would have been there, Jesus would have been there, and the Father would have been present with John. It must have encouraged him. Don't you think about this. It must have encouraged him to worship alone, knowing that other churches were worshiping at that same time. You see, we never know what the Lord will do when we gather and how He will move in our midst. And God's about to move in John's midst in this cave with chains on his hands and his feet, he's about to get a revelation and a picture of the glory of Jesus. And so I'll say this, it pays to be present when God's people gather to worship because you never know what God's going to do. You just never know what he is up to. So here's John while he's worshiping, cut off from friends. Jesus arrives and gives John the largest detailed revelation of his day at the end of the first century. John, in that moment, as he's worshiping and Jesus shows up, is occupying two worlds. He's physically on earth, physically on Patmos, but he's also taken away to the spiritual world and is worshiping King Jesus and seeing the glory of who he is. I tell you, persecutors can aim to force us to keep our body somewhere, but they cannot take our love and our passion and the opportunity to worship Jesus. John is not having some charismatic, ecstatic experience here when he sees the vision of Jesus. The text tells us that his mind is engaged, he sees clearly, he thinks clearly, and he sees exactly what is going on. And it's a sweet moment for him. So again, one last time, for six and a half decades, he has been walking with Jesus. He is practicing on this Sunday 
exactly what he had been doing all along, gathering to worship Jesus. Listen to what 1 Corinthians 15, 58 says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Grandparents who are investing the gospel in your grandchildren because their parents are not investing the gospel in their grandchildren and there's conflict about that. Stay at the task. Invest the gospel in your grandchildren. Stay at it. Don't give up. Be steadfast. Be immovable. Continue to pursue Jesus and walk with Him. John had come to know the glory of the reality of that moment. And then behind him, a trumpet sounds. And I, John, I almost called you this week to have you sneak in the back and blow your trumpet. But I thought some of our older people we love would, would might die. And so um, I didn't want them to have a heart attack this morning. But I seriously thought about it, just you just blaring that thing and sneaking in in the back there, but it didn't. But I want you to notice this. John chained. Worshipping on a Sunday on Patmos in a dark cave. Tattered clothing all by himself. He's taken in the Spirit. And behind him, a trumpet blows. And it's not just a trumpet trumpet. John says it's a voice trumpet. It's a voice that sounds like a trumpet. Trumpets are blown for a number of different reasons in the Bible and in life. And they are always to call attention to something. And so I want you to know this. Here's John. Let's just say he's just sitting like this. And you can at times hear the chains rattling on his feet as he moves to a new position because he's old and he's working hard and his muscles ache. And he's moving and he's worshiping and he's maybe quoting scripture. He's saying things out loud that he's already written about Jesus. And he, maybe he's singing a song. And in the midst of that worship, <clears throat> a loud voice like a trumpet calls John from that. And we will see next week that he's going to turn and he's going to see in that dark cave the glory of King Jesus whose feet are afire and whose eyes and, and this unbelievable description comes to us in the moment that's here. And so John sees this, hears this as he is worshiping. By the way, did you know that Jesus still is in the business of that, that when we worship, he shows up and he does things. Today could be a day that could transform you today. Because let's just be honest, all of us at times have an apathetic faith. We're not passionately pursuing Jesus. Maybe today would be the day where you're like, I'm tired of this being my life. That yay Jesus, uh, yay Jesus. uh, That we just knock that off and we just say, I want to be like John who had come to know this, that there's a treasure to know Jesus, 
connected in relationship, connected with the body of believers, that's worth it walking no matter what happens and what comes. And so John, practicing his faith, worshiping on a Sunday, has the voice of Jesus speak to him and call him to turn and to look at the glory of Jesus. And the first thing that the voice says is this. I want you to write down in a book. The Greek word for book here is scroll. Eventually, later on, uh, the writing happened on animal skins. Um, But the word here is papyrus. It's a scroll um, that would have um, rolled out, and he was to write all of this. And so everything that we see in these 22 chapters are there. And what I want you to see as we finish up is that Revelation is a book that was given for the church to know about Jesus. That's the purpose of Revelation. The very first verse of chapter 1 says, the revelation of Jesus. And so as John writes it down, it was to come to the church, come to us, to know what's there so that we can pursue him and walk with him. Becca, would you put that last picture up there? So this is, this is kind of the churches that were there. Um, we know that Smyrna um, was not around when the Apostle Paul was doing his ministry. Uh, the first bishop of Smyrna is a guy named Polycarp, and he writes that um, it was founded later. Um, uh, but there were, or excuse me, um, there were there were some. Uh, um, sorry, it would it would have been started a little bit later by the time John had this, and and so probably sometime after John or after Paul, uh, Smyrna was founded, but it was on this trade route. This is a postal route where you would come into the port by Ephesus, and as we begin to walk through the churches in the weeks to come, they are in this order. So somebody would go to Ephesus, they would hand them a scroll, and then they would go to Smyrna, then they would go. Uh, to Pergamum, then they would go to Thyatira and Sardis and Philadelphia and back to Laodicea and then back to where the postal route was when Ephesus was a thriving city at that particular point in time. So this is, this is what's happening and taking place. And so the letters are going to go to all of them. Now, there were much more churches. One of the amazing things about Asia Minor, which is Turkey, modern-day Turkey now, is that Paul eventually gets to a place where he says this in, in the book of Romans, that there's no other place in Asia Minor that he could go to where somebody had not heard the gospel. I want you to think about how much he had permeated Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And there are very little believers on Turkey in Turkey today. It's a pretty strict Muslim country that does persecute believers and give some pressure to believers there. But this is, this is the seven churches that Jesus wants to deal with that we will walk through um, specifically the week after the mission trip, but we will begin to see the aspects of the glory of Jesus next week. All right, let's pray, okay?